This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. David Grand. David Grand is a psychotherapist, a writer, a lecturer, a performance coach, and a humanitarian, famous for the discovery and development of the internationally acclaimed brain-spotting method. He's the author of the groundbreaking book, Emotional Healing at Warp Speed, and has been interviewed on CNN, NBC, and Nightline for his enormous success in healing victims of trauma. With Sounds True, David is just releasing a new book on brain spotting, the revolutionary new therapy for rapid and effective change. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David Grant and I spoke about just what brain spotting is. We talked about a simple self-brain spotting exercise that you can try right now. David explained one of the core principles of brain spotting, that where you look affects how you feel. And he discussed a situation in which he was the client and received brain spotting therapy. Finally, David talked about some of the future innovations of brain spotting and why he's so passionate about advancing the field of brain-based therapy. Here's my conversation with Dr. David Grand. Brain spotting is known as a brain-based therapy. And I wonder, to begin our conversation, David, if you could help our listeners understand this whole category of brain-based therapies. When I started, when I was trained in the 70s and into the 80s, everything was put in the context of the mind. And I always used to, like, wonder, well, where is the mind? And way back then i was i was thinking well it's got to be in the brain and um the 90s became the uh the decade of the brain where we really got to understand many things about it that we hadn't before and then from there it started to filter its way into uh psychotherapy practice just as far as understanding what was happening during psychotherapy but uh the evolution of brain-based therapy is a matter of not just understanding what may be happening in the client's brain during the therapy process, but really engaging them around it. In other words, educating the client as to their brain, um, uh, even encouraging them to read books or go online. And as the process is going on, to really be talking about, well, this is where it's happening in your brain, and this is what's happening in the brain, and this would explain some of the symptoms you have or reactions you have. And what's really interesting is that people really like that. People really resonate with that. Um, and it's like the brain understands itself. So in, in the therapy process, 
and really in, in other forms of work that I do in the performance and creativity work, uh, when you describe and educate and engage the brain of the person in front of you, uh, you're able to, to really do a lot more and, and have, have a process be more powerful and focused. So pretend I'm one of your clients and I want to understand more about how my brain is working and how brain spotting is going to work with my brain to help me. Can you educate me? Here I don't know very much about brain science. Where would you start? Well, as far as brain spotting goes, the watchword is where you look affects how you feel. And specifically, uh, when we think about something that has any meaning to us or activates us in any way, if we look to the left or the right as we think about it or feel the feelings, it actually feels different. Also, if we look up or down, it feels different. And it feels different usually like on one side it's more intense and the other side it's less intense. One side it's more right in our face, the other side we have more perspective on it. Um, uh, and this is a matter of uh, the field of vision being a reflection of our, inter, of our internal brain processes. Um, so with brain spotting, we literally use where a person looks to find where they're holding their traumas, where they're holding their symptoms, their negative beliefs about themselves, or you know, anything of that nature. And once we find it, we hold it in place and we have the person just stare. We use, usually use a pointer, uh, stare at the tip of the pointer, and just be mindfully aware of what goes on inside of them, especially attuning to what they're feeling in their bodies. Because the body is a reflection of what's going on in the brain. Uh, I like to say what's in the brain is in the body and what's in the body is in the brain. Um, but if this was, in, a, in addition, what as far as the more specific brain-based approach, um, what, I, what I explain to people is that uh, there are, we have different levels of consciousness, which is, you know, we all know, but that the consciousness of the left prefrontal cortex, which is the left part of the brain in the front, where most of the thinking and reasoning goes on, and most of our conscious awareness goes on, uh, it feels like that left prefrontal feels like just who we are, and the rest of our brain is not even there where it's something or somebody else. Just like we don't attune necessarily to our bodies as being ourselves. Um, but what I like to do is is to educate people that with brain spotting, we're bypassing this conscious thinking part of the brain, that left prefrontal part of the brain, and, and we're able to access the right brain, uh, which is the more intuitive body-based brain, um, and access the, the midbrain, which is more the, it's known as the limbic brain or the mammalian brain. Uh, that's where the, the fight-flight alarm system goes on. And even in some ways access all the way back to the hindbrain, which is also known as the reptilian brain. Uh, so in doing this with brain spotting, you know, we do it, but we ed we educate the person as far as what's actually happening in their brain. Um, and one of the things that happens in brain spotting is what we call processing, and I call it focused mindfulness, which is that when a person is, let's say a person's thinking about a trauma from when they're five, and we found that spot, and it's to their right and up, and they're looking at that spot, and they're aware that they're, they're, it feels like there's a weight on their chest, um, the processing that goes on, the focused mindfulness, is the 
is the uncritical uh, tracking of, of a person's internal process, and oftentimes it's thoughts or feelings or memories. But it can jump around. It can go to things that seem totally unrelated. And people oftentimes feel like, oh, I'm not doing this right or what's happening, I'm confused. What I explain to people is that in this focused mindfulness process, on the spot, that the person's conscious thinking brain is observing the deeper unconscious brain. It's observing the workings of that deeper part of the brain. And that literally they're traveling down the neural pathways that are unpredictable and kind of mysterious to our conscious selves. Uh, but that by doing it, we're actually watching the brain process the experience and watching the brain healing itself. Now, David, help me understand this for a moment. You're talking about here, I come in, I'm a client, and I have some kind of past trauma, and that by helping me look at a certain spot, so in the visual field, you are helping me identify a certain spot, that there's a relationship between me looking at that spot and the trauma that's been held in my body and brain. I'm not quite clear on that, what the relationship between the visual place that I'm looking at and the trauma experience being held in the body and brain. Let me start by just talking a little bit about trauma, and then I can give you a better reflection on that. Uh, the brain is a processing machine. It's made to process infinite experiences that we have all the time. Traumatic experiences, especially in childhood, overwhelm the processing mechanism, which means that parts of the traumatic experience go unprocessed or frozen in different parts of the brain. Um, Robert Scare, who's you know a great expert on these things, has come up with the concept of trauma capsules. And I like to t say it's almost like time capsules because they're left frozen in time and space in different places in the brain. Um, it's not exactly as literal as this, but, but on a functional basis, this is how it works. So there are trauma capsules of frozen traumatic experience that are left unprocessed, unresolved in the brain. Now, if, I have, if a person is, again, talking about uh, you know, when their father left and didn't come back when they were five years old, and it's marked the person's life, um, that information is held in certain trauma capsules in the person's brain. When I have the person bring up the memory and we ask, you know, how activating is it, zero to ten, and let's say it's a seven, slowly we go to different places in the person's visual field and I'm asking them, where do you feel it the most? Where is it the most activating? And again, let's say it's, the, in this case, to the right and down. Literally, when we bring the pointer there, the person will just feel it. It's almost like a charge and, and feel it with great specificity. And, and by doing so, that, that spot that they're looking at to the right and down correlates to it. It reveals and correlates with a trauma capsule or a number of trauma capsules that are held in the person's brain. When the person continues to look at that pointer, what's happening is that the brain maintains its focus on that trauma capsule and that all the attention and all the processing that's happening is not going on throughout the entire brain. It's going on through that region, through that encapsulated region of the brain, which then has a chance to process through that experience in a way that it didn't the first time around. Okay, And literally, it can release that trauma capsule and just have it become just a normal, integrated part of the brain and go from being a trauma to being a memory. 
you know, go from being something that has a charge and feels like it's happening at the moment to, to well, it happened to me, but it's in the past, and I survived, and, and I moved on. So normally these trauma capsules are hidden from our awareness, but there's something that happens in the brain-spotting process using this technique that reveals the capsule? How does that work? Well, people oftentimes have the erroneous notion that when they've been traumatized, that they'll never get over it, okay? One of the classic things you say is that image, you know, or the sound, you know, I'm going to have to see it or, or hear it or feel it the rest of my life. What they're really doing is is they're just relating to that frozen information in the trauma capsule, okay? But what happens, and and if a person goes for talk therapy, it's going in through the conscious, you know, language areas of the brain that that don't really get to where those trauma capsules are. When when a person literally, when we when we explore the person's visual field and we find that hot spot, or you know, that's what a brain spot is, it allows the person, it allows their brain to find it, which they haven't been able to do before, and it allows the brain to figure it out you know, through processing it, you know, the way that it was really meant, meant, meant to happen if, if it didn't overwhelm that person, especially at that young stage in their life. Now, is there any way that someone listening to this right now could do some type of experiment with their visual field so they could get even just a little sense of what you're talking about? Well, the first thing I'll say is that Human beings are brain-spotting all the time. We just don't know it. And ironically, people, even in a psychotherapy session, are brain-spotting. It's just the therapist doesn't notice it. Uh, what I mean by that is that we are looking at different in different directions at different points when we're thinking about things or talking about things. In brain-spotting, we call it a gaze spot. You know, So if a client sits in front of me and she's talking about you know something that just overwhelms her and, and, and just bothers her every day, and meanwhile, she's just looking right at one spot on the floor. She's just staring at it, uh, almost burning a, a hole in the floor with, with that. What's happening at that moment is she is revealing to me that, that there's something there right in that spot in her visual field. Just going backwards a, a couple of steps, when I say we're doing it all the time, if you start thinking about something and then you realize you're looking at a spot on the wall and there's no reason for you to look at it, you're naturally intuitively, you know, brain spotting, okay? If if when you do that, all you have to do is just keep looking at that spot once you've discovered consciously that you're doing it and watch wherever your internal process goes and 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 it's almost always a fruitful revealing kind of internal experience. But even more specifically than that, I mean just to try this out, anybody who's listening can think about something that's bothering them. We don't want them to take a, the major life trauma that you know that they're carrying that overwhelms them. You know, if, if there is such a thing, just something that's bothering them at that day, and look to the right. Look to the right, which means just to find something. You know, it can be a lamp or a doorknob or something, and look at that and think about the thing that's bothering them and notice how they feel it in their body. And then after doing that for even ten seconds, just look at something to the left and just fixate on that, you know, and think about what's bothering them. And just and and to notice the difference be- between what it feels like looking to the right or looking to the left. The best way to gauge it is what you feel in your body, you know, um whether you feel an activation in your body, in your chest, your back, your head or something. 
uh, or whether you feel more of kind of a release or a calm in your body. Um, by doing this, this this experiment, and people can be doing it right now as we're talking, um, the air that spot where you feel it the most, if it's more to the right or more to the left, that's a brain spot. That reveals where something is being held in your brain that's feeding this thing that's bothering you. By and 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 the way to experiment with that one step further is just keep on looking at that spot. And just like you do when you meditate, just with mindfulness, notice where your thinking goes step by step by step. But it's really important to not be, to not judge it, to not put expectations on it, to not be critical of it. If your mind jumps around all over the place, it's natural. If you start thinking about things that seem to be unrelated or just, you know, a shopping list, it's all brain process, you know. So you just stay with it. If you stay with it for a minute, three minutes, five minutes, and watch where it goes, and then reflect back on what was bothering you. And you'll generally see that there's been a shift, maybe a very slight, subtle shift, or maybe a more noticeable shift in just how it feels to you. I mean, that's a mini self-brain-spotting experience. And when you say, look for the spot in the visual field, either left or right, or scanning from left to right, where you feel it the most, what do you mean, feel it the most? I might feel peaceful, or I might feel quite agitated. What am I looking for? Well, for a basic self, you know, experiment or just to, to know what it feels like, we generally would look where something look at in the direct. We're looking for where where you feel it the most. Okay, where I feel and the most inner disruption. The most active, and... I use the term activation because activation is sort of a catch-all term. If we say disturbance, it means one thing to one person, one to another. Activation just really means where your brain and body feels activated, where you feel something. Okay. We use a rating scale from 0 to 10, and this can be helpful in that self-exercise. Um, you know, it comes from uh, Joseph Wolpe, who's a famous behaviorist, where 0 means where you f- don't feel anything, where it's totally neutral. 10 means where you feel it the absolute most. And whatever number in between sort of, you know, gives a number to it. So so a way to simply judge where you feel it the most is is to judge the activation of the issue of whatever you're feeling emotionally, bodily. When you look to the left, you might look to the left and say, oh, it's a five over there. Then you look to the right and it jumps up to an eight. You know, Numerically is, is a good way to sort of you know, quickly identify the difference of where you feel it more and where you feel it less. Now I'm curious about something you said about how we're brain spotting all the time because you know, one of the things I've noticed is that I'll often find myself staring off into space in a certain direction to the point where my partner might say to me, you know, you're really just staring at that person. And I'm like, I'm not even looking at them. I'm just staring. But I'm not necessarily activated in that moment. I'm kind of in some kind of dreamy state of some kind. What's going on then? Does that have anything to do with brain spotting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, in, in a psychotherapy office, people bring in what's bothering them. So generally speaking, you know, something that bothers you is something that when it happens or you think about it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. You know, I like to use the technical term lousy, you know, it just makes you feel lousy. But brains, the field of vision reveals all kind, uh, kinds of different things in different spots. Um, I work with people in with creativity and we find the creativity spot where they feel the most creative. We can also work with people from what we call a resource model, which is to find the spot where a person feels the calmest, the most grounded. Okay, what you're talking about, where you're 
you're, you're staring off into space. It's it it is not random by any means. What's really happening is that something about that spot is allowing you to stare into inner space. Okay, that there's something on a deep basis there that you're pondering, that you you know may not even have an awareness of, and you may if you feel like you're just kind of floaty or drifty or not even knowing what you're what you're thinking about. It's because you're in the right brain or you're in the midbrain or the hindbrain that doesn't have thought and doesn't have language. It just has, you know, uh, an intuitive sense of things. So, so uh, every in the visual, the visual field is loaded with meaningful positions or eye positions, and they don't all correlate to negative things. They can correlate to neutral things or can to things of interest or or things where we feel, you know, introspective. Um, the, our visual field reveals our internal field, which is the brain. I think the part about all of this that still feels quite mysterious to me is understanding how the position of my eyes or whatever it is I'm looking at is relating to brain activity, the relationship between those two things. I'm still not clear about that. Well, in simple terms, you know, with the most rudimentary, rudimentary understanding of brain, the brain and brain activity, it stands to reason that if you're looking off to your right or looking to the left, your, your brain is not going to be exactly the same looking in two different positions, especially ones that are distinctly apart. You know, The brain is, is always active. It's always searching in different ways. So that you know, literally your brain, if, if you do a brain scan of somebody looking to the right or looking to the left, it's not going to look exactly the same. The shift in eye position correlates to a shift of, of brain activity. Um, but if you, if you look, this is not with us, this is not just because we're human beings, it's part of us as being members of the animal kingdom. If you look at animals and you watch how they scan, what they're really doing is orienting to their environment. Okay? And, and orienting to one's environment, the main way that we do it, that humans do it, is through sight. Um, and most animals, sight is an important part of it. So when we're so we're wired to orient to the left, to the right, up, down, in front of us, even behind us. So it's so being able to orient to our environment externally, which is really tapping into orienting to our internal environment, um, is just part of being in the animal kingdom. Uh, we're usually in orienting. We're orienting for two things, either for danger, you know, which shows us that there's a tiger coming from our left or a car taxi, you know, speaking from Manhattan, the taxi coming at us from our left, or we're orienting towards safety or nurturance, such as food or, or other people that we're associated to. So, so we're wired to orient to our visual field and to our entire environment. environment. That's one of the reasons why where we look reveals so much of of how we feel and what's going on inside of us. Now, David, it's fair to say that you, quote-unquote, discovered brain spotting and that you discovered it at a certain point in your career in 2003. And I wonder if you can tell us about that. How is it that you discovered this, it seems like, quite an important breakthrough? And has this discovery been confirmed by other people, other researchers, other practitioners? Uh, I discovered uh, brain spotting, and I, I only I didn't really discover anything using 
looking in different directions has been used with other techniques, uh, NLP, hypnosis, and so on. Uh, but also where we look has been used, you know, by archaic healers and, and uh, shamans. So it's so I, I didn't really discover anything. I just I just sort of stumbled upon something that was there right in front of my face, and recognized that there was something to it that I could utilize. I was doing a version of EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Uh, I would say my own version. I was doing very slow eye movements with a uh, a young woman who was an ice skater, and we were trying to break through this last thing that she hadn't broken through, which is a, the jump called a triple loop that she needed to do for either her short or long program. And everything else had been cleared through with the prior work, and we just she was just stuck on that. And as I went across her visual field, just before we got to the bridge of her nose, her eye went into this dramatic wobble and then just like locked into place. When that happened, it felt like a, like a wrist grab, a hand grabbed my wrist and locked my finger in place so that I just held it right in front of where that wobble and freeze was. And for the next 10 minutes, a torrent of of information and processing and experience came out and she became very emotional at different points and very and releasing in other points and it was trauma after trauma after trauma that was coming out what was fascinating was two things the first was that these were new traumas that hadn't come out and some of them were on the on the skating rink and injuries some of them were family stuff with their parents fighting but but a lot of these were new traumas that never came out in the process that I had done with her for that year of treatment. But the second thing was that a lot of things that I thought we had resolved reopened and processed through to a deeper level. The next morning, she called me from the practice rink. She was very excited. She said, David, David, I just did a triple loop with no problem. And she never had a problem with it again after that. What happened for me at that point is I, I had a feeling that that was, I mean, it was really dramatic. So... Um, I wondered if there was something there that might have application to other clients. So in, in doing these slow eye movements, I started to look for these eye, eye glitches, eye wobbles, eye anomalies. And any time I saw one, I stopped right there, and I, had a per- and I just told the person, keep on looking at my finger and watch what happens. And they started to go into, in almost every case, a deeper more focused kind of processing than they had gone in, that they were in before with the work I was doing. And the work I was doing was very effective and powerful. So, so for me, this was really, an, you know, uh, uh, it really grabbed my attention that, that this was a breakthrough to another level. During the course of the last 10 years, on my own and, and others who have, who have studied with me, we've discovered many different ways of, of observing and harnessing a client's visual field to see where different experiences can really be focused or brought out or released, uh, including positive experiences as well. Now, let's go to the story of the ice skater and the triple loop. So she came to you, you had been working on this for a while, and then this one day she kept her vision in one position for 10 minutes. New stories came forward that she saw in front of her. She was engaged in this focused mindfulness, as you called it. And the next day, she had this breakthrough on the rink. So what happened? What happened during those 10 minutes that then allowed her to have a breakthrough the next day? Well, uh, 
I can only speculate, but uh, you know, we're we are looking into this more and more, you know, through research. Um, and some of it is, you know, I'm not a brain researcher, so some of this even goes beyond my expertise. But um, there must have been some capsule, like I call it a trauma capsule, that was just either we couldn't find or was just too, um, uh, the, the encapsulation was too great that somehow with all the work and all the focus and all the eye movements and everything, we just it just never revealed itself. You know, and something about just that trauma that the information that was in that trauma capsule held the block for her about doing the triple loop, and it's really very hard to impossible to say exactly what it was but but what happened was, and this was there was nothing conscious about it, it was as reflexive as a as a knee jerk when you tap the knee, just at that moment when I hit that spot and her eye started to wobble like that. It was something that her reflexive system was experiencing and, and and saying to me, "There's something, David. There's something right here in this spot, you know." But it was there was no thought, no words. It was just a reflexive response. And the fact that somehow I stopped there and I just, you know, I mean, I felt it intuitively, you know, in my reflexive sense, self also probably. The fact that I stopped there helped helped whatever it was to to just really hold it in place and have her brain really just focus in on that trauma capsule and really kind of open up what what was inside of it. And all the traumas that came out had been just sort of frozen and held secretly in in that compartment in her brain. But once it had been processed and released, she was able to really come back into time and to place to not be stuck when she was five or three or or 12, but really be in the moment and do what all of her training and all of her, you know, practice, you know, was meant to allow her to do, which was to do an unfettered movement that for most of us would be an impossibility, but for a championship skater is actually not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. So it translated from the locating through that eye position to to the liberating through the processing to the actual change in behavior and the the liberation of her movement. I guess part of my question is this idea of the liberation that comes through the processing. What's your understanding of when this material is released from the capsule? How is it that just the release of the material then frees us in some way? Well, if we take it as a just in, as a single event trauma, let's say a car accident, okay? And if a person was driving the car and was broadsided on the right, you know, by someone who ran ran a light, okay? And someplace in that person's brain was frozen this notion that, you know, because, because again, the traumatic experience was still frozen in the person's brain. A part of that person, that little piece of their brain, was left behind in that traumatic event, feeling like it's just going to happen, it is happening, or it's just happened. Okay, that's what it means for something to be frozen in a person's brain, that part of the brain is still in the experience. The brain didn't process it through. It never got past it, okay? So um, so literally, every time that person approaches an intersection, you know, they're afraid of that of getting into an accident. But what's typical of trauma is the person's not afraid of being hit on the left. They're not afraid of being, you know, uh, rear-ended. They were afraid of being hit on that same spot on the right because it's frozen in the brain. The experience 
and the fear it's going to happen again is frozen in the brain, we find the brain spot for that person, okay? What it does is it finds that that frozen capsule of information where that person's brain is still stuck in the trauma. And when they start to process it, and literally they, they'll go through it looking on that spot. They'll go through it step by step by step. They'll feel it. They'll feel the impact. They'll hear the sounds and so on. And But they'll they'll get past it. They get to the point where afterwards, and they found out, yes, their car was destroyed, but they were okay. Or maybe they broke their arm, but they weren't killed as they were afraid that they were going to. And then they're going to they continue to process. The brain continues to go through historically what happened, which was the recovery. As that happens, when as they're still looking on that spot and they go back to the accident, instead of being right in it or feeling that charge or the impact, they start to feel like it's okay. It's it's further away. It's distant. It's in the past. I can go on with my life. In other words, the that part of the brain has now had a chance to to come out of that frozen, stuck position and process through the experience like the rest of the brain did. And now the person goes to drive to that intersection, and they probably don't even think about you know that that they're going to be in an accident or broadsided on the right because that part of the brain is not thinking about it anymore. It's more thinking about what they have to be doing. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I'm curious, David, if you yourself have received brain spotting therapy to work out any issues, and if so, how that went for you. Uh, in a few, with a few circumstances, yes, I did. And the funniest thing is that when I was the in the recipient position, the client position, I went into it just like anybody else would, even though I discovered it and I've developed it and it's my thing and I started to just do do what everybody else does because it's so intuitive you know it just kind of ha- it seems like it's happening on its own and my thought after doing a session of over something that was really bothering me and a colleague of mine who's really a top therapist uh did the brain spotting with me is like my thought was hey this stuff really works <laughs> you know but but it was it was it wasn't coming like like I know it works because I do it. I've done it with thousands of people, but I but I I knew it worked because of of what happened inside of myself. You know, as much as my conscious brain knows all the stuff it does about brain spotting, that left prefrontal area of my brain does. The rest of my brain is as mysterious and unknown and vulnerable as anybody else's. So I got to experience it. Yeah, you know, just. It might be too personal to share, but would you be willing to share with us what you were working on and what happened for you during the brain spotting process? Well, what it what it was was a um, um, it it had to do with a uh, uh, an unresolved uh, 
trauma for me where my son was in a uh, a bicycle accident where he was hit and run over by a car okay and and interestingly enough i had uh before brain spotting i had processed it with the mdr i'd received the mdr with it and it had resolved most of it maybe 90% of it but there was still a piece i could never really get through you know um and it had to do with getting the news on the telephone okay I was in my office, my wife called and, you know, told me that my son was in the hospital, he's he's okay, he's going to survive, but then all this stuff of the burns and the bone, bone breaks and all that kind of stuff. So that I never was able to really work through just the, the, the trauma of the telephone call and of my fear of bad news coming on the phone, especially when I'm in the office. So that's really what, that's what I, I brain spotted. And then can you tell us what that process was like for you on the receiving end, how you experienced it, what happened? Well, uh, what's interesting is that uh, I, I have a saying, uh, every trauma is a re-traumatization. It brought back three prior times when I had gotten very bad news in the office, you know, on the telephone. Um, and so so what really had happened, the reason it hadn't fully processed through with the prior work I had done is that we hadn't gotten to the to the traumas that were underneath it or underpinning it, you know. One of the one of them was when, you know, I, I'd gotten the news uh, you know, fifteen years earlier that my uh you know, that my father had uh you know, was diagnosed with kidney cancer and that they had found a uh you know, a tumor that had metastasized and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean that that was one of the things that you know, had to do with being traumatized by getting bad news on the telephone in my office. So that came up and processed through. I mean, uh, not that the incident had no more meaning for me, but but the telephone was sort of, uh, you know, it became neutral for me as opposed to somehow uh, dangerous. And do you have a sense that there's a certain number of sessions that are required in your case, how many sessions did it take for the receiving bad news on the phone trauma to work through you? Uh, that was one two-hour session. That's it? Okay. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. amazing. But remember, I had done a lot of work on it before, so I want to you know, be, be clear about that. Uh, but as far as what people bring into my office and the office of other brain spotting therapists, uh, I like to say what you put in is what you get out. And some people are much more ambitious when they go for, for therapy or counseling, and some people are much more limited in, as far as what they want. So uh, it has to do, the amount of time it takes has to do with, A, how ambitious you are or how more limited your, your goals are, but B, whether it is a single event trauma or whether it's repeated traumas, whether it's traumas from childhood or traumas from adolescence or adulthood, um, uh, someone who's had a lot of early childhood trauma, it's it's really infiltrated throughout the brain, and and the, the it was the brain and its early development that was traumatized. So uh, to really get fuller resolution, can take many sessions, can take twenty sessions, can take a year of of sessions. For other people and other issues, it can take one, two, five, ten sessions. So it really varies, but you want to keep it in context. Whatever gets done in that one two-hour session or in those 50 one-hour sessions, if you contrast it to most other therapies, especially talk-based therapies, 
um, you are getting a universe of difference, you know. So you may literally get in five sessions what you wouldn't get in a year of talk therapy, you know, because you're not getting access to the deeper brain, to the intuitive brain, and to those trauma capsules or other experiences that are held in places in the brain that you just can't find your way to by talking and thinking. And have you encountered situations where brain spotting just is not effective? Now, granted, it could be that a client just leaves after one or two sessions, and so they don't have the stick-to-itiveness that's required. But outside of that, are there other types of applications where brain spotting just doesn't seem to work? Uh, in general, no. And, and I'm starting with the general. Um, basically, when people say, well, who does brain spotting work on? I say people who have an active nervous system which generally covers most of us, you know. By the time you're flatlining, no, brain spotting's not going to work for you, okay? The the exceptions are, um, I mean, if you have a major psychiatric illness, if you have, you know, someone with schizophrenia, someone with, you know, bipolar disorder that is not properly medicated or treated or where the person doesn't have enough of a support system, you, you don't want to use anything, not just brain spotting, but any approach that's going to, that might destabilize them Okay, that would be an example. Uh, another example would be somebody who has uh, an addiction, an active addiction, you know, and what they need is really what you need to do for an addic- addiction, which is, you know, program and, and a, a much more comprehensive kind of approach. Um, with everything I've talked about so far, brain spotting has its place, but it's not going to be the primary mode of treatment. It's going to be more uh, an adjunctive or a helpful mode of treatment. Uh, another, you know, another aspect of this is that the therapist who works with the client, no, no matter how good they are at brain spotting, has to have expertise in the condition that the client is bringing to them. So, if a client is bringing in childhood sexual abuse, uh, brain spotting is very effective at getting to those traumas. But you have to know how to move in much more slowly and gradually and work from a much more of what we call a resourced position, you know. Um, uh, so, What do you mean yeah. by that? Well, uh, uh, first of all, therapy, you know, and, and brain spotting is not just a technique. Brain spotting is a technique that's used in the context of, a, of, a, of an attuned empathic relationship. Brain spotting does not replace, should not, cannot replace a therapist really being there with the client really listening, really tuning in, and following them in a, in a very open sort of way. Um, so that's that needs to go on no matter what. Uh, but there still needs to be the, the expertise in what the client is bringing. And if a client is coming in for OCD or panic attacks, you have to be an expert in brain spotting and OCD and panic disorder. You know, if a client is bringing in... Um, you know, complex PTSD trauma uh, or what we call a dissociative disorder, which is usually, you know, people who have different parts of themselves that tend to come out at different times, then you need to be an expert in that. Working in a more resourced way means working with, instead of where you feel active in your body or vulnerable in your body, working where you, where you feel calm or grounded in your body. Brain spotting with that means finding the eye positions that go that go together with the calm, grounded experience of the body, which is the calm, grounded areas of the brain, and being able to work very 
supportively and incrementally, you know, and and making sure that you don't overwhelm or destabilize the client. Mm-hmm. Now, in your new book on brain spotting, I thought one of the interesting sections was where you talked about how the client, him or herself, can actually find the brain spot by working from the inside of their body, not necessarily where the therapist is moving the pointer or their finger, but working from the inside. And I'm wondering if you could explain that. Let me give you an experience I had. I went for surgery, uh, hernia surgery, okay? And I was waiting in a room with six other people who were waiting for surgery. And surgery is not my favorite thing, you know, beyond being sarcastic about it. I, you know, I had a childhood phobia about about being cut or getting injections or things like that. So what I did is I, as I was lying there in the bed with an IV in, which I'm not too thrilled about either, I looked for the spot in that room where I felt the least afraid, the least, you know, active, activated, whatever it is. I saw that my feet were feeling calmer than the rest of my body. And I just scanned my environment and I found an outlet. It was, it was to my right and down. Okay. And when I looked there, I didn't feel great, but I felt much less overwhelmed than or afraid than in any other spot. It took them 90 minutes to bring me in for the surgery for those 90 minutes, I was just looking at that spot, and I felt, I just felt like I was not overwhelmed. I wasn't starting to get into negative thoughts or fantasies and so on. It just kept me kept me present, and it kept kept me, you know, to the calm place in my body, which actually started with my feet and slowly worked its way up up, up my legs. Um, for uh, the easiest way, and 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 in the book, the primary thing that I I talk about our our exercises using what we call the resource model. Again, that's going from the body resource or where we feel calm and grounded in the body to finding spots that match that up, okay? So uh, literally, you know, again, it can be different for different people at different times. You just sort of scan your body and see where you feel the calmest and most grounded. Oftentimes it's the extremities or the feet touching the ground or, or your body touching the chair if you're sitting in a chair. And with that, you just kind of sit with that a little bit and notice how it feels. And then you just, you know, scan to your left and scan to your right. And you see what, where, where looking, uh, which direction seems to go along with that calm, grounded feeling of the chair supporting your body. And once you find it, you, and so, sometimes it's a region, sometimes it's a pinpoint. Once you find it, you just look at that, Okay and watch where things go for you. Now, you can do that just for, like, meditation or wellness, but you can also do that to help you to process something that's bothering you. But the self-work is best done, you know, not focusing on where you feel it the most, but more where you feel the calmest and grounded, most grounded. Some people can do well on their own just, you know, and they'll find a spot. They'll, look, they'll start with where they feel the tension in the body or the pressure in the body, and then look to the right or look to the left, and they notice exactly where they feel it the most, and just look there and process it through. But again, in the book, and just basically on my own, I recommend that people use more uh, resource work for self-work. If people who are meditators really kind of know how to do this already, but even people who are meditators find that the meditation is enhanced when they work with a body resource and a resource brain spot. 
I'm curious what you think now that you're bringing up meditation about what happens when the eyes sort of move up and back with your eyes being slightly shut. So you're not actually looking outside, but there's more of a sort of inner and upward looking happening in the eyes, if you know what I'm talking about. I think this is something that certain meditators have found in their practice, that that can be a type of inner eye gaze that can be nourishing. Well, I'll start with the fact that that even with our eyes closed, we're usually looking in one direction or another. Okay? And when we think about something, our eyes... And, and I've, I've noticed this with my clients. You know, uh, sometimes clients will close their eyes, and I started to watch, and I could literally see that they were, their eyes were directing more towards the, towards the right or left or up or down, so that even with the eyes closed, we're still looking in certain directions. Okay? So, so literally, in terms of your, your question, although most people would, would tend to look up, some people would look more up to the left or the right, some act, people actually go in the opposite and, look, and find themselves looking down because everybody's wired a little bit differently. Uh, so you can incorporate this. It has to do really with uh, mindfulness has to do with awareness. So let's say if you're meditating and, and you are aware of where you're looking, you add that in, where you're looking with your eyes closed, and just maintain your gaze in that direction with your eyes closed. It can focus or en- enhance meditation. Mm-hmm. I want to add one more piece to this, which is really interesting. Uh, eye position in brain spotting is not just determined by where we're looking, just what we're seeing. It's also determined by the eye muscles that hold, the six eye muscles that hold each eye in place, okay? These eye muscles are really incredible because the job that they have to do, because we have two eyes of keep of maintaining our focus, they are adjusting and micro-adjusting all the time, every time we move our eyes, even if we stay fixed on an object. So the eye muscles, the six eye muscles for each eyeball are loaded with with reflexes. So... One of the things that we've discovered is that it's not just what we're looking at visually, but it's, it's, it's the positioning of those eye muscles that has to do also with, with our orienting and also locating different things in, in our brain and within ourselves. Do you think it's fair to say that we're sort of in the early days of brain spotting and that in the next couple of decades we're going to learn all kinds of things? And if that's so, what are the kinds of questions you're asking and the kinds of things you hope to learn in the decades to come? Okay, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we've been at it for 10 years. We've, been, we've done a vast amount of work. There are brain spotting therapists trained all over the world. Uh, so we've come a tremendous ways in 10 years. But I know, and the real experts in brain spotting know, that we're ju- we've just scratched the surface. We're really just at the beginning of this, you know, and and if you think that you really know what you're doing, you're kind of fooling yourself, you know. Uh, when you really get into brain spotting, you just want to look and understand more and more and more. Um, uh, I'm discovering new things all the time, so um, my develop, you know, my practice is changing and developing all the time, and it's part of what I bring into the trainings and teach other people. Um, the very simple thing of, of technology is what can really take brain spotting to another level in, in two ways. One is the technology just of uh, brain scanning. And of course, you know, we actually, I did a session with somebody in an fMRI scanner and, and we just 
really early in terms of looking at what goes on with that. But things like uh, QEEG, quantitative you know, EEG, that's uh, brain scanning, can be done. And uh, that if we can do get access to enough brain spotting sessions done with QEEG on and really watch the patterns, we can start to not just look by eye position, but we can start to read what's going on in the brain, not just by what a person reports, but what we see. We can start to really uh, uh, find different ways of of getting with greater accuracy to whatever a person is holding in their brain and their body, you know, and, and help to process it out more. So that's one of the things, you know, I'm just giving one example because there's lots of ways of, of watching the brain and reading the body. Another thing is really use of com- computer technology. Um, we're still very low tech. We have a pointer, you know, it's like the old school, uh, school teacher's pointer. Uh, the telescoping pointer um, in front of the right screen, or maybe even with you know the right goggles on. Uh, literally, we can simulate for people all, not just left and right and up and down, but close and far, and all kinds of different things and different colors and lights, um, so that the advances that can be made using information we have already, you know, in other fields or developing information just by what we observe and discover with brain spotting, um, I can't imagine in 20 years just what, what we're going to be able to, to be able to do with brain spotting. Mm-hmm. Now, David, I think of you as a real pioneer and also someone who is very focused, and this would be my own language, I would even say on a mission, and that that's what it takes often to bring a type of revolutionary new therapeutic approach into the world. And I'm always curious when someone has this kind of sense of mission or pioneering, torch-carrying quality about them, what's motivating them? So I'd be curious to know a little bit more about what's motivating you in your work. Well, uh, some might think it's my desire to heal people, and certainly that's part of it. Some of that, you know, might see me as, um, you know, uh, again, from a humanitarian point of view, I, I have to tell you the core of it is that I am uh, incredibly curious about things, and I'm always observing things. And as far back as I can remember, I can remember some ways back to when I was two or three, I was looking around me, you know, brain spotting, I guess, and just looking at that and saying, what is that? Why is that? I wonder why this is happening. I'm just an incredibly curious person, and I'm always interested in what... M- what makes things tick. When I was younger, I used to be very mechanical. I'm still mechanical, but I, I'd literally be look at things, you know, motors or other mechanical things or, you know, electrical things and just look at it. And, and I, I could figure out how the person or the people who developed it, developed it, you know, and, and how they made it work. It was always fascinating to me. Um, as a therapist, you know, we're working with, uh, the, the most infinite mechanism that's known in the universe, which is, you know, the, the, the brain, which has one quadrillion connections, which is one billion multiplied by one million, which, as far as we know, is close to infinite. So I'm always, with people in front of me, I, yes, I'm there to help them, and I'm always looking to help them as much as possible, as fast as possible. But people are absolutely fascinating, for who they are and how they are and why they are and 
uh, you see some patterns that go are universal, but you see so much that's absolutely unique. So a part of me is just like that two, three-year-old is always curious and, and fascinating. Just how does this work? What? Why is this? What's making this happen? You know, so... Um, more than anything else, you know, that's that's what drives me. And, and I think it really comes as much from my creativity as it does from, from anything else. And then just one final question, David. I'm curious what your hopes are for brain spotting in the near future. What are you hoping might flower? Um, brain spotting to me started as a psychotherapy Okay, because I'm a psychotherapist, and it started more in the realm of trauma therapy. Um, but um, it it goes to everything that has to do with what goes on in the human brain and the human being and the human spirit, um, uh, which goes to uh, creativity, performance, spirituality, uh, ex, you know, personal growth and expansion, um, and also and also just goes with things that have to do with the, the body, you know, somatic things. Uh, so so for me, being able to use the visual field to locate and help things, help the human system to access its health, self-healing capacities, um, as well as its self-actualizing capacities, uh, to me is goes way beyond psychology and psychotherapy, and it really goes to you know, all aspects of uh, of who we are and how we are and how we can grow and change and, and develop, you know. So uh, so really, uh, I, I do a lot of work in sports performance and creativity and acting coaching and things like that. Um, I know it has applications for business. You know, business is all based on the human brain and collective human brains. But science, learning, you know, I mean, you literally can learn more looking at cert- certain things from certain positions than from other positions. You know, when they say a person has a learning disability or learning block, well, if they're positioned in a certain place in the classroom, you know, and looking to that block position to the left, uh, the kid's are not going to learn as much as if they seated in the right and he's looking off to his right where he has more access. I mean, it, so I'm just going to education as well. There's wherever human endeavor goes and and it entails orienting and orienting through a visual field you know has potential application for brain spotting i've been speaking with david grand and he is the discoverer of a technique called brain spotting and he's also written a new book published by sounds true called brain spotting the revolutionary new therapy for rapid and effective change David, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Tammy, it's been a pleasure. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.